Welcome to Faith Seeking Understanding. I'm John Green, the host, and we're here today on a wonderful, beautiful day in western North Carolina. My wife, Suzanne, and I went out, and we went out to a place called Catawba Falls today. And I don't know if you'd call it hiking exactly. It's, it's kind of a boulevard trail. It's not flat, but it's wide and almost you know, beaten down, I guess is the best way to say it. And so we went up there. It was hot, a hot, hot day. And uh, anyway, we had a good time going up there. It was crowded. There were a lot of people out there. Um, but anyway, it was good. And we came back and got a little bit done around the house. And then um, we've had some thunder and some uh, rain, which we really needed because it's so hot. So I'm glad that, um, that we're having a nice day with all the right things in it. I hope that your day has gone well today. What I'm ready to talk about today, we're going to move on. And this week, we're, we're moving forward in that story in Genesis with Jacob. Jacob, um, he's a mess, right? Um, we're going to, the relationary skips a little bit in the story. Um, so I, I'll have to catch you up a little bit on that. We're going to get around to him kind of last, I think, today. Um, what I want to talk about before that, though, I, I want to start with the gospel. And the gospel is another parable from Matthew 13, which is mostly, it's all parables, and so I want to talk about the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds, sometimes it's translated. I had a friend uh, named Dave Weed, but he took exception a little bit to the use of the weed as the translation of it. He got a kick out of it, too. So anyway, the, the parable is this, that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, No, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time I will tell the reapers, Gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into the barn. It's clearly a passage about judgment, but, but it's about making judgment at the proper time when it's all really apparent. What they're seeing is, is that, that the grain is about to come into these and the tares that are there aren't producing grain. But it's still too early in some ways because in pulling up one root, you might pull up the stuff that's of value too. And so you've got to wait until the end when it's time for the harvest. And so there's a couple of things to see in this. So the servants of the master of the house are the ones who are asking him, do you want us to go gather this up? And the master says, no. At the time of the harvest, I'll tell the reapers gather the weeds first. So there's two different groups here between the men, the servants, and the reapers. And here's how you know that for sure. Jesus explains this parable later to the disciples. And so what he says is, he, he tells us all the characters, right? So he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. That's Jesus. The field is the world. The good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So these characters are all diff different. Jesus tells 
exactly who they are. And then he says, just as weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the, the angels are the ones who are going to sort all this out at the end, not us. So it's it, that, that's something, what he's saying is it's not given for us to do this. Because it's difficult to tell the difference between the two. And it's only when the grain is in the ear. And that can sometimes take a long time. It's hard to tell the wheat from the tares. It's not an easy thing. It's left to the end for that to be decided. But what is not left to the end is this. And, and I've said this before, and I got some people upset with me about it, but I'm right. So I, I'm going to persist and persevere because I want them to see this. First, it's the judgment is real. Jesus is very clear about that. There's a lot with this thing when Jesus says um, that the enemy who sowed them is the devil. That's a big deal. That's a really big deal in Judaism. It's something I'm going to have to spend some time talking to you all about because there's a lot in that. It, it is such a radical break with the way Judaism understands the one that we call the devil, that we call Satan. For, for them, he's the, the Satan, the Satan. And he has a job from God. And, and he does that job as it's assigned to him. But Jesus says here, He's an enemy who sows bad seeds that's going to have to be gathered up and it's going to have to be judged and dealt with in the end. No, it's it's Judaism doesn't have a parallel understanding of the Satan as an enemy. He has a job, and his job is to test uh, God's people so that they can grow in their ability to resist temptation. That's the way they understand it. Jesus says something stuff all the time that's really different here. When he says um, the enemy who sows is the devil, the diabolos, then the, he's making a radical break with the way Judaism understands the world. And and just as in the way they misunderstand Christianity, at, at the Trinity, as believing in three gods, they see our understanding of the devil, the Satan, the um, all that. They see that as as another way of saying, it's a break with Judaism in the sense that there's only one God. Because they say that if there's a rival, if there's an enemy to God, then you, you're, it's a different religion. It's not a branch of Judaism. It's different because you're seeing a rival to God and God has no rival. And we would say, you're right. He doesn't. We're not saying that he has a rival. We know who wins in the end. We know how all this ends. But there are people who think they're his rival. There are beings who think they're his rival. That's the point of that. So it's it's different. <laughs> but at, at any rate, so we, we see judgments real. But what you see is, is he says the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the son of the evil one. So we're not all children of God. We're all created in his image, and, and I hate to say that. I, I would like to say to you, we're all children of God. But Jesus doesn't say that. He does not use that kind of language. And I, I got there the first time through John's gospel when, when I pointed out that he gives the right to become children of God. And then when he speaks to Nicodemus, he, he says, you must be born again. 
So there's a distinction between being a child of God and one being created in the image of God. And it's offensive to get that. But Jesus is the one who says stuff like this. And so, so what he's saying is it's not for us to make that judgment. And it's not for us to deal with that. We're supposed to deal with sin, particularly when it's in the church. We're supposed to deal with sin. We're supposed to deal with it directly. But it's not up to us to decide what's wheat and what's a tear. Sometimes what looks like a tear is just wheat that's taken a while to bear fruit. So we have to be careful about our judgments. Our judgments always have to be contingent because we don't know what's going on. We don't know how that ends. You know, last week we talked about that other parable, that parable of the seed. Again, we had a sower, and, he, and it was the parable of the soils is a way to look at that. And so the soil determined what happened with that seed. Here, there's something else introduced into the picture, and that's some, an image who sows bad seed. So we can't judge these things because like I said, with the parable of the soils, I see looking back on my life, even looking at my life today, it's not bearing the fruit that I want it to bear. It's not being as productive as it should be. Hence, because there's other stuff there that's still got to be dealt with. It's called sin. It's the thing that keeps me from loving him completely and, and seeking first and only the kingdom of God. I can concern myself with too many other things. And so I've got to be careful about making judgments about other people because there's a time thing where things change. The soil changes. Life changes. All these things happen. And suddenly something new happens and there's a new person there and there's fruit where they had only been barrenness before. So don't judge other people and don't judge yourself too soon. You don't know. As Yogi Berra said, it ain't over till it's over. And that's true. And so we've got to see that as true and accept that as true in our own lives, that God's not done with us yet. But we also have to see it in our brothers and sisters as well. We have to see it in other people, even people that we wouldn't even consider our brothers and sisters today. Look at Paul, for instance, the author of Romans, which is our second lesson. And he's talking about, remember, he's gone through this thing about saying, I, I do the things I don't want to do. I love the law. I know it's good. But my flesh is weak and it's not able to do those things. In fact, it does exactly the opposite of that. Even though I approve and affirm the law and God's way for me, I do too often the things that I don't even want to do. And I can't force myself to do the right thing. But Paul's not using that as a way of making an excuse. He's explaining human nature and what it means to be born again, what it means to live by the Spirit, and it's a constant not a one-time surrender. It's a constant surrender to God's spirit, to God's truth in our lives. And sometimes that truth affirms us, but then other times that truth convicts us. And understand now, there's a huge difference between conviction and condemnation. Sometimes people just get those so mixed up that they're not able to deal with and accept and acknowledge and confess sin because they understand the, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit to be condemnation. And no, the reason the Spirit convicts us is to prove that He's still active in our lives. And He's bringing us to a different place. He's bringing us to a different manner of thinking and a different manner of life. 
And so the conviction of God's Holy Spirit for his people is evidence of the love of God, that he still has desire for your life to call you higher. It's not condemnation. That's not the reason the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin. So Paul says, here's the deal, brothers. We're, we're debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live by the flesh, you die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. He's not encouraging you to try harder. He's encouraging you to allow the Holy Spirit to have his way in your life. Surrender constantly to one of two things, right? The desires of the flesh or to God's Spirit and be led by the Spirit of God. Because he says, if all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Huh. Well, a lot of people believe all are sons of God. Paul says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And then he goes on with this whole thing, and he keeps talking about it, and he says, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You're adopted children of God, not natural-born children of God. We are adopted. We've been adopted because our elder brother made a sacrifice in order that we could come into the family of God, and become children. And he says, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, nobody ever reads this part, we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. And then he says, I don't consider the present... Sufferings of the present time are worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed in us. For the creation, all of creation, says, waits for the eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Creation, which has been subjected to futility, he says, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation needs the children of God to be revealed because we're not naturally children of God. All of creation was subjected to futility. Why? It goes back to the garden. It goes back to the sin in the garden. The ground is cursed and then it's further cursed with Cain. But then there's another garden, a land flowing with milk and honey and God's children are placed in that garden to tend it to restore it, to bring it to the fruitfulness that is inherent in its good creation. They're to replace those there who dominated the land and who harmed the land. They're sent there in order to be the children of God that creation will find its fulfillment in being tended by those who are the very children of God. And if you doubt me on this, remember what he told Jeremiah about how long they're going to be out of the land and why they're going to be out of the land. It's because they refuse to give the land its Sabbaths. We have the symbiotic relationship with God's creation, and we're supposed to tend it and treat it well. We're supposed to treat it as he told us to treat it. So creation, Paul says, waits in eager anticipation for the revelation of the children of God. So we bring God into 
creation. We make him known in all creation, in art, in, in gardening even. It's all intended to bring glory to him and to reveal him, the master gardener, the master artist. And all we do in our work is derivative from the master's work. So Paul says the creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so he says that, that, the, that don't just do it for yourself. Don't just surrender to the Spirit and live by the Spirit for yourself. Do it for all creation. Because all creation needs that to happen. All creation needs us to be completely surrendered to the Spirit of God, not the desires of the flesh. It's a big responsibility. But ultimately, it's his responsibility. Ours is to surrender. Ours is to live by the Spirit and not by the flesh, Paul says, because that reveals the children of God. Do we groan inwardly for adoption as children? We've experienced it in our salvation. Now live it to the glory of God. It takes time. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is necessary, in fact, to bring us to that place where we can become more and more. It's, it's revealing him in us. Is what the work of the conviction of sin is. It's a way we can cause him to shine forth in our lives into the world. And we'll become more human, more real, more children of God that way. So brings us around to Jacob. So we, we, we saw Jacob last week. Remember, he, he made some food. His brother comes in. He's famished and he thinks he's about to die. He asked him for some food, and, and instead of feeding his brother and saying, here, here's a bowl of soup, he says, no, give me your birthright. So I'll get the major part of the inheritance when dad kicks the bucket. And Esau says, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm going to die. What does it mean to me? So he gives it to him. Then he eats his food. He goes away. Probably wasn't about to die. But Jacob. What are you thinking, man? You're a terrible brother. You can't do that. But he did. And then later, before the lesson that we have for today, he also steals his father's blessing. His father tells Esau, hey, go shoot some game, make some tasty food, that, the kind that I really like, and bring it in, and I'll give you a blessing. Well, Rebecca, here's that. Rebecca, remember, is the mother of Jacob and Esau, who prefers Jacob, and She's the wife of Isaac. So what happens next kind of says she doesn't just prefer Jacob to Esau. She prefers him to her husband. Because what she says is she overhears this. And she calls Jacob in and, and says, here, get this, get that. Let's make some tasty food because dad's going to bless your brother. And we can't have that. Now remember that when she was pregnant, Rebecca had a word from the Lord about this. that the older would serve the younger. God had already promised her all of this, but this family, man, they're a mess. Rebecca was much better than the rest of them, but she still retained some of the rest of her family. We'll get to some of that in the next week or so. But so, so she says, go do this. And he says, but I'm a smooth man, and my brother is a hairy man. 
And she says, okay, well, we're going to cut a goat skin and we're going to wrap you in that goat skin so that if your father, my husband, touches you, then he'll not just, he, he, he'll know that it's Esau because it says that his, his eyes weren't good. So they do this. They were going to get it anyway. Isaac's not a good guy either, right? Because he knows this same thing. And yet he's got a preference, and so he's going to go with his preference. It's a mess. So what happens is, is they, they pull this little trick. And he gets the blessing, and, and he's only got one blessing. He doesn't have two blessings. He can't pull one back. He's No, he doesn't have a blessing left for Esau. And Esau is distraught by this whole thing. Well, at that point, mom knows, and you know what? The youngin needs to get married. Esau's already married. So he, he, she says, yeah, get him out of here. And so Jacob goes. He's sent away by his father who says, I don't want you to marry one of these Canaanite women. I want you to marry one of our people. And so he sends him back to Badan Haram to where his ancestors are to go get a wife. And so he goes. And on the way, that's where we meet him. Joseph left Beersheba and, Beersheba and went towards Haran. And he came to a certain place and he stayed there that night because the sun had set. So he's just nowhere. He came to a certain place and he stayed there. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and laid down in that place to sleep. They dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven, and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you'll spread abroad to the west, the east, the north, and the south, the west and the east, and the north and the south. And then you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I'm with you and will keep you wherever you go, and I'll bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I've done what I have promised you. Jacob awoke and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head, set it up as a pillar, and poured oil on the top of it, and called the name of that place Bethel, the house of God. But the name of the city was Luz at first. So here we've got this guy running away in fear because of what he'd done. Right? He had sinned multiple times against his brother and his father. And now here he is. He's alone. He's headed back to Haran. Last time you heard about Haran was when God called Abraham, his grandfather, out of Haran to the place that he would show him, the place that he would give him. And now here he is. He's back there. He's in the place God's going to give him. Because he says, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. It's not a different land. It's the land. And Jacob needs to know that. Jacob's not a good man at this point. He's a horrible guy. He has cheated his brother. He has lied. He has stolen the blessing. He, he, he's terrible. He saw us no better. But here he goes. He's going back. Well, there's a temptation when you go back. And God, even, even when God sent you back, there's a temptation. And that temptation is to get comfortable. We can't get comfortable in Haran. That's where his grandfather was called out of. So God gives him a vision right here in the land, the place that will become Jerusalem. 
he gets this vision. And I believe it's because he needs to know, if I want to meet with God, this is the place. It's the house of God, the gate of heaven. I've got a lot more to say about that, but that'll be in a different context. But anyway, so he says this is it. So he has to come back to this place now because he knows this is where God is. And this is the promise God made him. He's going to go to Haran, but he always will remember this dream, this vision that God gave him. And he will have to be consumed with ultimately coming back here because this is the place he met God. This is the place God's given to them. It's the promise that God made to his grandfather. It's renewed right here as he goes back to the place his grandfather was called out of. Sometimes you got to go backwards to go forwards. Jacob's character had to be changed. He had to be reformed. And it was going to be a trial by fire. He was going to go have to live with his uncle Laban for a long time. Where Eliezer went and found a wife for Isaac, grabbed her, went straight back. No, this is going to be 20 years. You're going to meet your match in your uncle Laban, your mama's brother. You're going to meet your match, Jacob. And hopefully, you'll be a changed man because of it. Because hopefully, you'll see yourself. And you'll come face to face with the sin in your life. Because you're going to pay the price for the sin in your life. There's two ways of doing things, right? You can do it God's way or you can do it the hard way. I'll go ahead and give you a little foretaste here. The gate of heaven. That's not the word for Bethel. The house of God. The gate of heaven in Aramaic, which is a kin uh, language, is Babel. The gate of heaven is Babel. That was man's attempt to build a tower reaching from earth to the sky. We're going to take earth into heaven. Jacob sees something different. What he sees is here. God had a place where heaven came down. And that's the point. Heaven came down. And so when Nathaniel in John 1 doubts Philip's recounting of we've seen the Messiah, he comes to see Jesus and, and Jesus knows him from afar. He says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. He makes this grand declaration of Jesus as the Son of God. And Jesus says, you're going to see greater things than that. You're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jacob knew when he saw angels ascending and descending on the earth that that was a gateway to heaven. And it's where the temple was. And the temple was the place where God met man at the throne of judgment in the Holy of Holies. Jesus says, you want to know where to meet God? You'll see angels ascending and descending on me. I am the meeting place between God and man. If you want to know the nexus between heaven and earth, you're looking at him, big boy. 
sometimes. It's a long way around. We can take the road, the path that the people of Babel chose for themselves, which was we're going to make bricks and we're going to build a tower and it's going to reach into the heavens and we're going to make a name for ourselves. And you can work at it and you can do all that, but ultimately it ain't going to work. God's not going to accept that. You can work hard. You can do all kinds of things to please God, but you'll never get where you want to go. You got to take God's way, which is to recognize that if you want to meet God, if you want to bring him in and bring him into this world, you got to meet him in Jesus. That's the only place. There's no man-made way to get there. There's only a God-made way. Why do we always choose the hard way? Why is that? Well, sometimes you got to take the long way around. Sometimes you got to wait to make your judgment. If I had judged Jacob right before we meet him here in the wilderness, I would have found him wanting. I would have said he was a horrible guy and there was no hope for him. God had a way of changing Jacob. You know, change is never easy. For us to become more like God requires us to become less like us. We're comfortable being like us. We figured out ways to make things work just like Jacob. But don't judge. And don't give up. God's still working. He still has hope. He still has a plan for a glorious future. If you're willing to do it his way, it'll be a lot better. You'll enjoy the ride a lot more. But don't judge too soon. Don't make premature judgments. Because if you do, you make mistakes. Keep pressing on. God's still at work. He's still alive. Thank you for listening to Faith Seeking Understanding. Again, I'm John Green. I'm the host. If you've got any questions, comments, or whatever you'd like to send me, prayer requests, or whatever, you can find it through the Facebook page that's linked here in the description of this podcast. I hope you have a blessed week, and I hope that you see God and meet Him in the person of Jesus Christ this week.